take your Bible, open it to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. So we've been doing a, a teaching through the book of Psalms, Medicine for the Soul. And uh, we've done many selected psalms, and we've selected tonight the longest psalm in your Bible, Psalm 119. It has 176 verses. We'll be doing all of them tonight. No, just kidding. So turn over there, Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm in the Psalter, which is another name for the book of Psalms, and the longest chapter in our Bible. And so the big theme I think I would lay out for you about Psalm 119 is this famous verse, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then tonight, so you can kind of see the image here that my beautiful wife has put together of a man walking an illuminated path towards the cross. And then tonight, the individual message that we will look at is the path of purity. And I'm talking to a lot of people who have been around the church for quite some time. I know you guys have memorized Bible verses. This one you will remember. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hidden in my heart or treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Now those verses, that's 9 through 11, are within our uh, greater passage tonight as we look at Psalm 119. And we're going to look at the first 16 verses. Before we do, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for the time of worship. Thank you for the gathered body of Christ. Thank you for faithful uh, pastors all over this world Three pastors in Canada we would lift up tonight. Arthur Pulowski, who I think is still in prison and has been severely mistreated. I pray over him and his family and his congregation. The Cave of Adullam uh, congregation, uh, I think known by another name as well. But may you strengthen Arthur and may uh, he be released quickly, even like you did in the book of Acts. Would you miraculously free him and I pray that uh, your will will be done. You'll exploit it for good. But I pray ultimately that this will be exposed for the wrong that it is. And for Pastor James Coates and the congregation and also another pastor, Patrick, I believe is his name, who has millions of dollars in fines from the Canadian government only for being open. Uh, would you strengthen these three men? And there are many others like them. There are those in the States as well. Thank you for this opportunity to be together. Let us not take it for granted. We pray over our broken, fractured world, which is hemorrhaging on so many fronts. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the repentance of our nation. And we pray that you would work in our hearts tonight. Let our hearts be more in love with you, more in tune with your spirit, more desirous to walk the path that you have for us. In Jesus' name and for his glory, if you agree, would you say amen. amen. The path of purity. You'll notice in Psalm 119 that you have headings and uh, they, they are the 22 uh, letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so let me just give you a kind of a, a, a flyover of the psalm. You'll notice at the top of Psalm 119, you do not have an author here. The old commentators believe that David was the author of Psalm 119, and I think that's a safe uh, view to take, but we don't know for sure because the author's not there. There are other uh, newer commentators that believe that this psalm was penned over a period of time in what's called the post-exilic period or the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when they returned from the exile. So when you hear post-exilic, that's what we're saying after the exile. So when they returned from Babylon, some believe that maybe Ezra or Nehemiah or somebody within that time frame could be the author of this particular psalm, but we just don't know. It's a little bit of conjecture. I mentioned it's the longest psalm in your Bible, and you'll notice that at the top of the opening section, you have a, a, a symbol there. That is the Hebrew aleph. So the Hebrew alphabet starts with an aleph, A-L-E-P-H, and it ends with a tav. 
And the first two letters are Aleph Bet. So we have uh, the Hebrew alphabet laid out as an acrostic in Psalm 119. And what that means is that each of the sections of eight verses, so each section has eight verses and then another letter. So it would be like our English alphabet if we had the A. Each of the eight verses that follow the A or the Aleph here in Hebrew start with an A. So every sentence starts with that letter. And you have eight sentences, and then you have the bait, which is, you could say, the B in Hebrew. And then eight sentences that start with the B, and so forth and so on. That's how it goes. And so if you ever wondered, you know, what are those little symbols there? And maybe you saw the, the Hebrew alphabet there explained or written out. Um, that's what's going on here. It's an acrostic in that sense where each sentence starts with that particular letter and each letter will be represented. We'll only do the, the first two as we move through this. A little bit from David Gutzik, who quotes several authors in regard to Psalm 119. The theme of the glory of Scripture is diligently explored in this psalm, but always in connection with God himself. Derek Kidner well remarks, This untiring emphasis on the word of God has led some to accuse the psalmist of worshiping the word rather than the Lord. But it has been well remarked that every reference here to Scripture, without exception, relates it explicitly to its author. Indeed, every verse from four to the end is a prayer for affirmation addressed to God. This is true piety, a love of God, not desiccated by study, but refreshed, informed, and nourished by it. I had a recent conversation with a young man who's investigating the evangelical church and comparing it to other uh, expressions of faith. In this case, it would be Catholicism. And he was asking me about our services as compared to, for example, the Catholic Mass. And I explained to him that, you know, uh, having grown up in the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholic Mass, although it does have a homily, which is kind of a commentary on Scripture for a short time, um, is really moving towards a moment where people will partake in the Eucharist and then partake of the, the wine or the cup. And in Catholic theology, they believe that as you partake of those elements, they're literally transubstantiated, that is transformed, quoting now, to the body, soul, blood, and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they would call it a mystery, but when the priest consecrates the mass, literally these common elements are transformed or transubstantiated until, into what they call, quoting them, the literal body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. That is not my view. That's not the evangelical view, nor is it a biblical view of what those elements are. Now, there are different views in terms of what the evangelical church would say. Some would say they're simply memorials, simply symbols. There are others who take that the special presences of the Lord is there as you partake of them. And there's different views within the uh, evangelical church. But here's what I would say. The evangelical church spends much of its service in long studies of God's word. And here's why, and this is the distinction that I discussed with him. And it kind of was like a light bulb went on for him. Because in Roman Catholicism, they believe that grace is infused into your life in your participation of the Eucharist, the wafer, and the juice, or the wine. In Christianity, we believe that your main nourishment comes from what? The word of God. And I would tell you that that can be easily proved by the pastoral epistles. So I'm talking to a more mature audience tonight, so let me just share. In First and Second Timothy and Titus, called the pastoral epistles, pastors are told what they should be up to. And they should be giving themselves to the public reading of Scripture. And they are to preach the word in season and out of season because the word is what nourishes the soul. Now, you, we don't detach the word from the God of the word. We know that it nourishes the soul because it's alive, because God is ultimately the author of scripture. Amen? So we spend a long time, and if you're at Living Truth, long time has an emphasis on it, I know, 
in the word of God because that is what nourishes your soul. Now, obviously, prayer will nourish you. The spirit of the living God nourishes our soul. Worship nourishes us. But when the pastoral epistles are written from Paul to Timothy and Titus, the main emphasis is the proclamation of God's word for the benefit of the sheep or as Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. So the word of God is alive with the power of God and able to nourish your soul. And Peter wrote it this way, as newborn babes, we are along for the pure milk of the word that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. So that is why the word of God is elevated within the Christian context. And also that when something is elevated, and in this case, I'm standing on a platform and there's a pulpit here, what is supposed to be elevated is not the man, but the word. And so this comes from the idea of the book of Nehemiah when Ezra stood up and he had a pulpit and the word of God was honored and they read the word of God to the people and the people wept before the word at the words of the law because they knew they weren't doing them. So I think it's important for you since you would call yourself, I believe those of you who are here or watching an evangelical Christian to know why we do what we do. Uh, main emphasis is put on the word of God because the word of God has the power to nourish your soul and to transform you. And, and I make this emphasis because we are dealing with a chapter that is so, you could call it almost exhaustive in its treatment on different angles to talk about what the word of God is, its nature, and its value to your life. The word of God has tremendous value to your life. The more you read it, the more you talk about it, the more you interact with it, the more you go to Bible studies and talk about it, it gets deeper and deeper into your soul and it will bear fruit in your life. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said these words, this wonderful psalm from its great length helps us to wonder at the immensity of Scripture. From its keeping to one subject, it helps us to adore the unity of Scripture for it is but one. Yet from many turns it gives to the same thought. It helps you to see the variety of Scripture. Some have said that in it there is an absence of variety, but that is merely the observation of those who have not studied it. I have weighed each word and looked at each syllable with lengthened meditation. And I bear witness, says Spurgeon, that this sacred song has no tautology in it but is charmingly varied from beginning to end. Its variety is that of a kaleidoscope. From few objects, a boundless variation is produced. In the kaleidoscope, you look once and there is a strangely beautiful form. You shift the glass a very little and another shape, equally delicate and beautiful, is before your eyes. And so it is here, close quote. Luther, Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the uh, Protestant Reformation, said these words. He prized this psalm so highly that he would take the whole world, he would not take the whole world in exchange for one leaf of it. Some great people have memorized this whole psalm. Yes, memorized 176 verses. John Ruskin, a 19th century British writer, William Wilberforce, a uh, 19th century British, British politician who led the movement to abolish the slave trade in the British Empire, Henry Martin, uh, 19th century pioneer missionary to India, and David Livingstone, 19th century pioneer missionary to Africa, all memorized the whole of Psalm 119. Can I ask you, have you memorized Scripture? And could you say, that you have five verses under your belt, 10, 20, 30. Maybe some of you who grew up in church could say maybe more. But how about 176 verses from one single psalm? See, this is how seriously these people who really God used to change the world took their Bibles. And today, I don't have to tell you, there is a diminishing of the word of God, not in individual Christian lives alone, but even in the church where you can go into some evangelical churches 
and they'll pick a modern topic of the day and you'll get very little Bible. So I think it is very important that we celebrate that there are many churches in this uh, North America that we enjoy living in who are elevating the word of God and sharing it uh, consistently with people. We mentioned that the psalm is arranged in an acrostic pattern, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This is very unique in scripture. The only other place that I know of uh, that has an acrostic pattern like this is Lamentations chapter three. Outside of that, this is unique to scripture, so it's not common that this is laid out in this way. You have the Aleph at the top of uh, verse one and these words. So you have the Hebrew Aleph or the A, how blessed, the uh, sentence actually starts with the Hebrew word esher, and that is how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Whenever you look at the first verse of a chapter or a psalm, it often lays the foundation for what's ahead. And so what you have is something very similar in many of the psalms. In fact, the very First Psalm starts off this way. Let's go way back there and remind ourselves of the blessing that's attached to the word of God as it sets kind of the pattern of the entire book of Psalms. Just hold your place in Psalm 119. We'll just look at a couple verses here, but you will remember these how blessed words when you read how blessed Psalm 1-1 is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's the Hebrew word Torah. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And then he'll, he will be like a, a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Back to Psalm 119. Also opening with Esher, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, Psalm 119, verse one, and who walk in the law of the Lord. If you want a blessed life, and some of you have heard that, uh, and I think some modern translations do render the Hebrew word as share as, oh, how happy. And I think it is legitimate, even though happiness can be kind of a hard thing to pin down in you know, what we might call secular definitions of the word, happy is a word that fits with blessedness in the Bible. Oh, how happy in the best sense of that word is a person whose way is blameless, who walks in the law of the Lord. If you walk in the law of the Lord, your way will be blameless. Oh, how blessed. The word blessed, asher, is a state of prosperity or well-being. It's when a superior, in the Hebrew word, uh, bestows favor on a person who's almost pictured as bowing before them. It also has the picture of fire on the head or the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is the blessedness of a person who walks in the law of the Lord. Oh, how blessed. If you wanna be a blessed person, you need to walk in the law of the Lord and you'll have a blameless life. You say, what's the word blameless mean, Pastor Michael? It doesn't mean sinless. It means that your life is not uh, open to someone walking in, for example, to this room tonight and say, I know that this person is currently up to no good in this way. To be blameless is to be with living a life without open charge. It doesn't mean that you haven't made a mistake, but it means that you're not in constant, unrepentant, habitual sin. You're not cheating on your wife, on your taxes, in your business, etc., etc., etc. You're not a fraud. You're blameless. You're without blame in your life. No one could walk in here and say, this person is a fraud. They could say you're imperfect and we would say join the club. And Job, in the opening verse of the book of Job, was a blameless man. The Lord uh, really talks about him being blameless. 
And it doesn't mean that he was sinless because there's places in the book of Job where Job will talk about the fact that he has sinned. But when you walk in blamelessness, it means that you don't have a habitual pattern of being a phony. It means you're authentic and real. And let me take this right to your home and say to you that if you're a phony in your home, then you're a phony. If your kids cannot see you in this way and you go home and basically do the direct opposite of what you claim in the church building or otherwise, then you are not blameless. And the people that are looking at you and forming the idea that Christians are hypocrites is your own family. Don't do that. And this is where we have to ask God for mercy because we spend the closest, you know, lengthy hours with our family. And sure, we should be able to be ourselves. And sure, we should let our hair down and all of that. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about trying to put on a show at home. But here's what I would say to you. If you're a Christian, it will come out wherever you are because you can't help but it be the overflow of your heart. Let me just kind of maybe bring a little relief to your soul. If you're walking with the Lord, you don't have to fake it anywhere. You don't have to fake it until you make it. Because if the Lord's doing the work, you won't have arrived. You won't be the person that you hope to be. But you certainly won't be the person that you used to be. So I, I hope that you're asking questions like, how can a young man keep his way pure? And it's just not just a young man, because I'm not, I would not be considered a young man right now. To some people, uh, they still call me young man, and I appreciate that. And when some people call me young man, I, I bless them, and I, you know, I, I give them absolution from any sins that they did during the week, and that kind of thing. So this isn't just for a young man, but young men have probably intensified temptation, wouldn't you agree? I mean, we know how morally confused our world is right now. There's so much trash and garbage going on, so much confusion. But this includes young women and older men and older women. We all deal with temptation. We all wrestle with how, what is the path to purity? And sometimes, let's be real, we look at the bombardment of this world and sometimes ask, is it even possible to be pure? You know, people in our world think it's a joke. Most people in our world, and I'm talking about the world, the secular world, and sometimes even people in the church, think it's a joke that people can stay virgins until they're married. I married a couple in their 40s when they got married and they were both virgins in their 40s. It's possible, but what we do is we kind of laugh off God's ways. And I will tell you that this psalm is going to tell us that there's a blessing that goes with purity. There's a blessing with blamelessness. How blessed is repeated in verse 2. It's Asher again, and if you're interested, it's, if you look it up in a, a lexicon, it's A-S-H-R-E-E-Y here, like Eshrei, but it's how blessed are those, verse 2, who observe his testimonies and seek him with what? With all their heart. How blessed. You want to be blessed? Be blameless. You want to be blessed? Walk in the law, the law of the Lord. You want to be blessed? Observe his testimonies and seek him with all your heart. In the first eight verses, there are seven different Hebrew words or English renderings of words for the law. For example, in verse 1, you'll notice that the word there is who walk in the law of the Lord. That word for law is Torah, T-O-R-A-H. Some of you have heard that people call the first five books of Moses the Torah. And you may ask why. Well, the reason is, is because the first five books are considered the law of Moses, penned by Moses. That's kind of how it's described in other places in scripture. And so because of that, the five books are called the Torah. The Greek word for those five books is Pentateuch. So 
So if you guys have heard that before, that's just simply a way to capture the five books. But they're called Torah because they're law books like Exodus and Leviticus and so forth, different laws. So Torah, to simply put it, so you have a definition because I believe this is foundational to the whole thing. Torah means instruction, direction, and in the Hebrew picture language, Torah means to hit the mark. Sin means to miss the mark. Torah gives you the mark to hit. So oftentimes when we've defined sin, and we use the, the uh, Greek word for sin, to miss the mark, it's like we paint the picture of the bullseye and we say, okay, you know, maybe you could hit the bullseye, you had 10 darts and you could hit it maybe a couple different times. But the moment that you miss the mark, you're imperfect. And so that just, that's one word for sin and it's the general word for sin. You just simply, you're human, right? So you're gonna, you're gonna miss the mark. Torah tells you how to hit the mark. And let me just give you a kind of a big picture uh, observation. Even though the law in the New Testament is often painted as this thing that no one can live up to and the law, it condemns us, the law is good because the law is from God. The Ten Commandments, which capture really the 613 commandments and subcommandments, are good. They're from God. They're, Paul calls them holy. He says the problem is not the law. <laughs> The problem is the guy trying to keep the law. The law, Torah, has become my schoolmaster to drive me to Christ. But if you want to read this devotionally later, I'm not going to take you there right now. Romans chapter 8, especially around verses 3 through 5, teaches us that the law can be kept by persons who are what? Walking by the Spirit. So, now again, we're not always walking in the Spirit, so therefore we're not always going to keep the law. But it's possible to accomplish the law, or let me put it this way, the essence of the law, if you walk by the Spirit. Amen? Then you can fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And think about it just simply. If the law is captured in loving God with everything that I am and loving my neighbor as myself, it's not that complex, is it? But it is hard because my flesh wants myself to be the center of my universe and everybody else's. I want what I want, when I want, how I want it. So for me to defer to somebody else, to love them as I would love myself, to love God with all that I am, is the New Testament bullseye. Now, I don't always hit it, but I'll tell you this. Don't use Grace is an excuse for you not to try to hit it. Don't use grace as a license or an excuse for sin. Don't do that. Paul says, God forbid that you would do that. The mark is still there. The Holy Spirit helps you hit the mark. Jesus fulfills the righteous requirements of the law so that you're not going to be judged based upon performance. Jesus already paid that in full. But God still expects you to be trying to hit the bullseye. Amen? Now you have the help of the Holy Spirit to do it. Are you aiming for it? Because there are some people that don't even know what the target is. What is the target? It hasn't changed. It's been fulfilled. It's been better explained in the new covenant. But here's what it is. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you should love one another by this. All men will know that you are my followers, my disciples. And that's John in the New Testament from the mouth of Jesus the night before he dies for the sin of the world. How blessed. You want to be blessed? You know, some people think, oh, you know, a message like the path of purity. Give me a break. I just want to have some fun. Do you know what? Do you know the thing that really ruins fun? Sin. People think, oh, you know, I'll get serious about God when I get older, the path of purity. Now, this is directed 
The middle of the, of the psalm, the first section of the psalm is directed at a young man. It's to say to a young man that if you stay true to the wife of your youth, you'll have a blessed life. You'll know the joy of your salvation. You won't have to deal with the stain and the shame of sin. For those of us who have lived on that side of the track, we can tell you, it ain't fun. Oh, it's pleasurable for a few moments, a little season, but then you get to reap the consequences. If you want a blessed life, observe, verse 2, God's testimonies. Seek him with all your heart. The second word for law, I said there's seven different uh, words here, is testimonies. It's the idea of witness is the definition of the word or to bear witness or just think of it in this way when someone gives testimony in a court of law. It has the further idea, does the word testimonies, of repetition and continuance. It's the special and direct revelation, says G. Campbell Morgan, of God's will in God's word. Our job is to observe them, the testimonies. Each time we observe the testimonies of God, we become a testimony to others. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teach them to observe everything I commanded you. And so, blessed are those who observe his testimonies. Verse three, they also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. See the word ways there? That's the Hebrew word derek, and it's the name Derek. I don't know if there's any Dereks in the room or uh, if you know somebody named Derek, but that's the Hebrew word for walking in God's ways. And when you walk in his ways, it's another way of explaining how to walk in his law. And way is a very simple definition. It speaks of direction. It speaks of a path or a road, taking steps on that path. God's ways are found in God's word. And so when I walk in his ways, I am walking in his law or in his word. Jesus said, John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. He'll have the light of life. You've been buried with Christ through baptism into death, Romans 6, 4, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. This is what the psalmist is saying. He's saying there's a path to walk. Thou has ordained thy precepts, another word for the law, that we should keep them diligently. The precepts of God are another description, the fourth description of God's law. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan says, the word is a poetical expression indicating definite injunctions. This is a word drawn from the sphere of an officer or overseer and a man who is responsible to look closely into a situation and then take action. The word points to particular instructions of the Lord as one of one who cares about detail. Precepts. We are not to be passive about God's precepts, but diligent to keep them. Here's an example. Marriage is a God-ordained institution. It's a precept of God. It's something that he not only has uh, instituted, but he defines it. Oh, that my ways, now you could see a prayer here, and uh, this is something that we note, noted in the introduction. Uh, the psalmist will often do this. You know, he'll share truth, and he'll say, oh, that my ways may be established. You could put it this way. Oh, that I would keep your statutes. It's one thing to learn stuff, right? Oh, okay, the law of the Lord is this. Torah means that. You know, uh, this is what it means to define a statute. Okay, good. Good that you learned that. Now, how about you walk in them? Oh, you, you mean you got to do something with it? I just like giving definitions out. Torah. He even rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Torah. Hit the mark. Good. How you doing? How you doing with hitting the mark? See, if you pray that your way would be established, it means this. To be established means that you are stable. The word established speaks of stability 
and maturity. When someone's established in a career, we say something like this. Oh, that person has been doing you know, XYZ for 20 years. They're an established person in their field. And we might go to them for wisdom. We might say, hey, I got a question. Now I'm new to this field. And they're established and mature. That's what God wants you to be in your walk. Amen. Established and mature. Not that you need to go back to milk again. But you know the word of God. As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Paul says in Colossians 2, 6 and 7, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. God says of Israel in Ezekiel 37, I will reestablish them in the land. I will establish them on my word. That's something that's coming. Then, when I'm established, when I'm walking in God's Torah or his law or precepts, then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all thy commandments. Now, the word commandments is another word for the law. It's the sixth description of the law. And Jesus said, if you love me, John 14, 15, you will keep my commandments. John goes on to write a little epistle called 1 John, and he says, that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. They're my joy and my delight. So Jesus said, if you love me, obey me. And that's the night before he died for the sin of the world. Keep my commandments. They're not burdensome. By this we know that we have come to know him, 1 John 2, 3, if we keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. And so here's, here's kind of what it looks like. When I'm walking with the Lord and I read Bible verses, I learn, I want to apply, but if my life gets off the path and then the preacher opens the word, and Bible verses start hitting my life. You know what I often feel? <laughs> Can I get a witness? Little conviction. Little God's people said, ouch. Little, sometimes some shame, right? Sometimes you go back and you step back onto a path that you know you have no business being there. Doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Doesn't mean you don't love the Lord. Let's just say that you slipped and you made a mistake. And then the word of God gets open and, man, you can't look at it with maybe the same confident heart. But the first emotion that often comes is shame. Why? Because I know I'm not doing that. And the truth has gone out and I'm not necessarily comfortable when I look on his commandments. I want to have a clean conscience. And so I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart seven when I learn thy judgments. Uh, that's, I think, the seventh, uh, I think that's the sixth or seventh word. Yeah, judgments is the seventh description of the law. I will give thanks with an upright heart, another way to say blameless, when I learn, I like that because that means it's a process. Nobody has arrived. We've got to keep learning. When I learn thy righteous judgments, God's judgments are always right, I shall keep thy statutes. That's a repetition of a word for law. Do not forsake me utterly, O God. Sometimes when I look at your law, I'm like, you know, I'm like Peter at that great catch of fish. Oh, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Depart. <laughs> no, 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 Lord, don't depart. Don't leave me. And he's not leaving you. He's not going to forsake you, right? But his judgments are righteous, and when I am walking with the Lord, I can make a righteous judgment. The Bible doesn't say not to judge. It just says to make a right judgment. John 7, 24, Jesus put it this way. Don't judge by mere appearance. Make a right judgment. John 7, 24. For those of you who hear people say, judge not lest you be judged and take it out of context, Matthew 7. Jesus is saying there, don't be hypocritical in your judgment. Take the log out of your eye. 
then you'll see clearly to make a right judgment about what someone else is doing. You make judgments every day about friends, about relationships, about work, about choices that you make in terms of your body and exercise and food and you name it. Jesus didn't say don't judge. He just said make a right judgment. Now we have set the foundation. We'll move quickly because we're winding down. How, you'll notice the bait, the B, each of these eight sentences start with a B now or a bait. How can a young man keep his way pure? You have a new living, it's stay pure. New King James, how can a young man cleanse his way? By keeping or guarding it according to thy word, NIV, by living according to your word. The word for word there is another way to say law, and it's the Hebrew word debar. And I'll come back to that in a second. It speaks of the spoken word, God's revealed word to man, uh, Jesus said, man, uh, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So kind of having the nourishing idea, Jesus said, you're already clean by the word I've spoken to you. How can a young man cleanse his way? And here, the idea is how can a young man stay pure? How hard do you think that is right now? Do you know statistically how many young men they say are addicted to pornography tonight? And do you know that the uh, polls or the stats are saying that it gets younger and younger and younger by the, probably by the month because of exposure to technology and it hooks you in and it's rampant. How? I was reading something this week and somebody said, I hope, so. I hope you're asking the question, how? I hope your desire is to be pure. I hope you don't justify impurity. Well, the how is to live according to your word. It's keeping it according to your word. A little tough language here, but the Hebrew word shamar means to hedge about, to guard, protect. It's a word used when uh, Adam was put in the garden to cultivate Genesis 2.15, and keep the garden. He was to be on the wall, so to speak. He was to protect it. The word of God will protect you as you take it in, walk in it. It will keep you. It will keep you pure, amen? Because you'll be uncomfortable in context of impurity. Have you noticed how your Language has changed since you became a Christian. Here's one example. And it's not for me, it's not like, uh, I just, I don't say those words. <gasps> you know, it's not that. But I remember I used to be uh, playing racquetball and we play, played a lot of competitive racquetball. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the guys, he was a former boxer. He called me, he used boxing, boxing names. So in this corner, Kid Mike the Preacher Boy. That was my name, my boxing name. I'd come into the racquetball court. And he said, boy, you're nice outside the court, but you're ruthless inside. And I said, oh, yeah. Competitive spirit. It's a spiritual gift, I think, isn't it? No, never mind. But anyway. And so they would curse on the court, and they would realize who I was. I wore a robe when I played and a collar. No, just kidding. <laughs> And they would say, oh, I'm so sorry, Pastor. You know, bleep, 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 bleep. And I would say, oh, you may kiss my ring. I'll give you absolution. I'd throw a little water. Ah, it burns. You know, that, never mind. <laughs> One time I was playing this guy, and it was clear that he was going to lose. And he was trying to get me to look at women in the gym walking by. And, you know, seven to one, ready to serve. And you go, oh, look at her. Oh, wow. And terrible. He was, anyway, never mind. <laughs> the tempter came to Jesus and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. How did the master swordsman deal with temptation? He quoted the word of God. That is insightful. 
Because that tells you that Jesus knew the authority and power in the word of God, the sword of the spirit. By the way, when you see the sword of the spirit is the word of God in Ephesians 6, 17, that's the Greek word rhema. It's not logos. And it's a specific word for a specific temptation. It's that you know the Bible well enough like Jesus that when the devil says, turn these stones into bread, you could quote a verse that says, man shall not live on bread alone. His Using the sword, the rhema word, was specific to the temptation. That's how well you and I need to know the scripture so that we can uh, deal with temptation with God's word. With all my heart, I've sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Lord, I'm prone to wander. So help me to seek you with all my heart. Help me not to wander. Lord, lead me, Lord's Prayer, not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. For this reason, the writer of Hebrews says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 2.1. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You see, all it takes to drift is to do nothing. I have surfed over the years and I could paddle out at Newport Beach and be in front of the 16th Street, you know, um, lifeguard tower and sit on my board and in no time, if, if the current was correct or whatever, it would sweep me over and all of a sudden, I was just sitting on my board and now the people that I love are way over there and it's gonna be a long paddle back. All you have to do to drift is nothing. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Your word, 11, I've treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Let me explain. To treasure God's word in your heart, literally, if you look this up in the Hebrew lexicon, means like you were taking money and putting it in a treasure chest, as they would do in the old days, and burying it in the ground, and saving it up, and saving it up, and putting it in the ground. Today we'd say, maybe it's in your safe at home, or maybe it's in the bank. Why would you put money away? Why would you treasure it up, and up, and up, and up, and literally hoard it, is the Hebrew definition. Why would you hoard money? Why would you put it away, save it? You're saving it for what? A rainy day, just in case. When you need it so you could pull it out. That's what you gotta do with God's word. You may not think that that verse is applicable to you on a given Wednesday or Sunday. You may forget most of the sermon. Story of my life. But, <laughs> but when you treasure God's word, even if it's a single verse or a nugget that you walked away with, you'll be able to pull it out of the treasure chest later to deal with something in your life and stand in victory. Amen? That's what it means to treasure God's word. Job said it this way, I've treasured your word above my necessary food, Job 23, 12. I'm out of time. So let me just wrap this up by saying, uh, and, and you're gonna see kind of a declaration of commitment, which I think is what we need to do. Blessed art thou, 12, O Lord, teach me your statutes. That should be a regular prayer of all of us. Lord, teach me your ways. I haven't arrived. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in scripture, yes, you know, I know verses and yes, maybe, maybe I kind of know things about how to be a technician of a passage, but that's not enough. Teach me, teach me your ways. With my lips, I've told of your ordinances, uh, of all the ordinances of your mouth, declaration of commitment. I wanna do this in Bible study. I wanna talk with my family about it, with my bride. I want your word to be at the center. I've rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. Your testimonies have a way to them. It's the path as much as in all riches. I want it above silver and gold. I want to rejoice in it. I will meditate. This is my commitment. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Father, thank you for your word. Help us not forget. 
We are so prone to wander, so prone to forget the one who loves us, the God we love. Lord, let us be those people who treasure your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. When David sinned, he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. I don't want to do that. My sin is first and foremost vertical. When I sin, it's against you and your word. And I don't want to do that. But thank you that you've made a provision for my sin. Because if you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? Not I. But with you, there's forgiveness. And the Torah was pointing us to the one who would come and fulfill that law and lay down his life as the perfect sacrifice and pay our ransom and free us up so that we could walk in liberty and so that we could fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. It is to your prophet that I go away. I'm gonna send the helper and he's gonna help you, guide you into all truth, empower you to be my witnesses. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for not leaving us as orphans. You saved us. You've called us. You intercede for us. You sent us the helper. You're for us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Help us, Lord. Help me to walk in your ways. Forgive me. Forgive us for the times that we've chosen other paths when we knew better. There are some things that we don't know, Lord, and some are brand new to their faith and they're learning things. And there's some things that we just, maybe we didn't realize. But the more we learn your ways, the more we, we know they're holy, they're good. And there's a blessing attached. Here's the wonderful thing I think to end on. There's a blessedness to walking in your word. Oh, how happy Oh, how joyful. Oh, how blessed. We are a blessed people. Would you pour out a blessing, Father, at the end of this time that we cannot contain? Let us be overflowing with gratitude, with strength for today. Would you extend your powerful arm to those who are hurting? Maybe they're feeling a little bit of conviction. Would you remind them of your grace? that we, we all are still a work in progress and we haven't arrived. Do you show us wonderful things in the days ahead so we can delight and meditate on your word? Let it be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. You are our light. If you don't know Christ tonight, it would be a great time for you to reach out to him and ask him to save you. Tell him you want to follow him. Tell him you believe in his death and resurrection and his perfect life and his current reign as king of kings. Trust in him today. And if you have felt like, man, I've been away for a while. I've been on the wrong path. It's just a step back to get on the right path again. And even coming tonight shows that that's your desire. And he knows that. And he wants to bless you. So Father, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name.